Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Welcome to today's show. If you pay attention to what you read in the newspapers and magazines and on the internet and on television, you get the impression that you could either believe in miracles and possibly believe the biblical account of origins, or you could choose to go with science and have things that are soundly based in fact. And generally those facts are the Big Bang, absolutely proven, explains everything we see, and Darwinian evolution that explains the vast array of living things that we see around us. Let's focus for the moment on the Big Bang and some of the underpinnings of that theory. Was it really based just on hard-headed, pragmatic scientists looking at the physical evidence? Or is there something else going on here as well? Professor Joseph Silk, the head of astrophysics at Oxford University, wrote one of the primary books on the Big Bang. Consider what he had to say. Because there is essentially no direct and unambiguous experimental consequences of our assumptions about the first seconds in the Big Bang, we may question the model of a simple, uniform, and isotropic Big Bang. Surely the metaphysical conjecture continues. A highly irregular and chaotic beginning seems the most likely of the infinite set of possible models of the early universe. The one constraint is that such models must eventually decay to a uniform state of expansion to provide an adequate description of the currently observed universe. Okay, let's unpack that a bit. The first thing to understand is that the foundation of the entire history of the universe is supposed to be those very first few seconds of the Big Bang. And referring to this, Silk says there is, quote, an infinite set of possible models of the early universe, among which there is essentially no direct and unambiguous experimental consequence that could be used to distinguish between them. Therefore, any particular model is the result of a, quote, metaphysical conjecture, end quote. And he illustrates the point by saying we could equally well start with a simple uniform model or a highly chaotic model, just as long as that model turns into the universe we see around us. Well, what are some of those assumptions that are being made? An extremely important one is highlighted by Stephen Hawking's words, However, we are not able to make cosmological models without some admixture of ideology. We would not claim that our position in space is specially distinguished in any way. Note Hawking's use of the word ideology. This isn't something required by science. It's a position, essentially a religious position. So what requires the ideology? It's the simple fact that our universe looks finely tuned. It looks like we're at a favored position. But since Hawking is an atheist, in his worldview, it's simply impossible that we live in a designed universe, especially one designed for us. So even though the evidence seems to point to fine-tuning, he simply wants to define that evidence out of existence. So they make the assumption that, viewed on a suitable scale, the entire universe is homogeneous, meaning what looks like a favored position to us would look like a favored position anywhere. Essentially, it boils down to saying it really only looks fine-tuned and designed for us because we're viewing it only on our local scale, and if we were able to view it on a large enough scale, we would see that things are the same everywhere. 
they actually then defined the geometry of space to be a type of geometry which is not the common one you're thinking of, common old Euclidean geometry of the universe being a sphere like a beach ball. Well, that sphere would have a center, and it sort of looks like we're at or near the center, but that's an unacceptable answer. So we'll define space to be a non-Euclidean type space in which there is no center, but every point looks like a center. And that's what they've done. That is ideology. Let's think for a moment about that assumption of the universe being homogeneous or uniform, another word for homogeneous. The famous physicist Richard Feynman, in his lectures on gravitation, commented on this. Listen carefully. I suspect that the assumption of uniformity of the universe reflects a prejudice born of a sequence of overthrows of geocentric ideas. It would be embarrassing to find, after stating that we live in an ordinary planet, about an ordinary star, in an ordinary galaxy, that our place in the universe is extraordinary. To avoid embarrassment, we cling to the hypothesis of uniformity. Now let's go back to Joseph Silk's usage of the term metaphysical conjecture. What is that? The dictionary says a conjecture is the formation of conclusions from incomplete evidence a guess. And metaphysics is the branch of philosophy that deals with first principles, especially being and knowing. So essentially, a metaphysical conjecture is a philosophical guess about what happened at the beginning. Now, Silk and Hawking are simply being honest. There's nothing wrong with what they're doing. Everyone begins with philosophical or ideological assumptions as their starting point. It's unavoidable. So those who criticize a biblical worldview for beginning with the assumption of God are often unaware that their own worldview itself begins with assumptions taken by faith. Let's look a bit further. Theoretical astrophysicist Professor Stephen Hawking of Cambridge wrote A Brief History of Time, his best-selling book, and in it he claimed the Big Bang Theory was, quote, in agreement with all the observational evidence that we have today, end quote. And Carl Sagan's introduction to Hawking's book includes, This book is also about God, or perhaps about the absence of God, a universe with no edge in space and no beginning or end in time, and nothing for a creator to do. Now, if you just read the introduction in Hawking and Sagan's statement, you might think, well, the Big Bang explains everything. It explains the origin of the universe. It explains all the observational data that we can see. And there's nothing whatever for a creator to do. Physics is taking care of everything. Well, read the whole book. A few sentences after Hawking claimed the Big Bang Theory explained all the evidence, he admitted that among the few remaining unanswered questions was the question of the origin of the stars and galaxies. Now, hang on a minute. If you look out into space, what do you see? We can see a few planets, but the vast majority of everything we observe are stars and galaxies. I thought the Big Bang explained all the observational data, but it doesn't explain stars or galaxies? Are you kidding me? So if Hawking admitted stars and galaxies aren't explained, how in the world did Carl Sagan reach the conclusion that there's nothing at all for a creator to do? Well, he reached that conclusion because he was a staunch atheist, and he starts with the idea that there is no creator. Therefore, there must be nothing left for the creator to have to do. 
By the way, there's an excellent book discussing these issues and many other problems with the Big Bang model by physicist and cosmologist John Hartnett titled Dismantling the Big Bang. If you're interested in it, I highly recommend you read it. It's explicitly claimed that the Big Bang explains everything we see, but we're discussing some of the unresolved issues and some of the important elements within that theory. For example, Hawking's admission that it does not explain the origin of stars or galaxies. That's kind of a big omission. But let's run the expansion backwards. As this expanding universe goes back in time, or as we think about it further and further back in time, you reach a point where all the matter, energy, space, and time of the universe are essentially squashed into nothing. This type of nothing is called a singularity. Now, saying nothing doesn't mean that the matter has gone away. It just means that it's in a state that we know nothing about. We can't even investigate it. As Hawking himself said, the laws of physics break down. So science really knows nothing about a singularity. In fact, it's ugly enough that there have been many, many attempts to avoid this within various Big Bang models. Well, did you know there's multiple models, not just a single one? Well, let's go with the flow and assume there is a singularity. How do you get the universe out of this thing? Carl Sagan called it, quote, the biggest mystery we know, end quote. Now, despite all the attempts to avoid the singularity, Silk actually has a section titled Avoiding the Singularity, but he says, we can say definitely that, subject to certain reasonable assumptions, a primordial singularity is unavoidable. Hawking said pretty much the same thing. There must have been a primordial singularity, provided only that general relativity is correct and that the universe contains as much matter as we observe. So it seems unavoidable that the Big Bang theory requires a starting point that is outside of science and requires, as Professor Joseph Silk said, metaphysical conjectures, along with the ideology that Hawking's expressed to avoid any appearance of special purpose for us, the assumption of uniformity, which physicist Richard Feynman says we cling to to avoid embarrassment. Just consider these few facts, and you should realize that the basis upon which the Big Bang is founded is anything but objective, pure, observation-based science. As much as anything else, it's an ideology. But as I've said, that's okay. It's truly impossible to even think about origins without starting with some form of assumptions, some kind of ideology. But let's continue the thought. How well does the model work? Well, when someone of the status of evolutionary cosmologist Stephen Hawking acknowledges that the origin of stars and galaxies remains an unanswered question within the Big Bang paradigm, I think it's fair to say it doesn't work. It's inadequate. It's incomplete. In Dismantling the Big Bang, Hartnett and Williams write, It is common among evolutionists to say, when challenged over the inadequacy of their theory, that it is, quote, the best scientific theory that we have, end quote. By this they mean, since nothing better is available, then this one's good enough. This is a fallacious argument. If it were true, we could apply the same logic to turn a bicycle into a time machine. We could say that a bicycle is the best time machine we have, and therefore it is good enough to do the job, because no one else has a better time machine. This is ludicrous. The lack of a better alternative does nothing to improve the adequacy of the bicycle. 
Likewise, the lack of a better alternative does nothing to improve the adequacy of Big Bang Theory. In fact, the Big Bang Theory is not the best we have. The Genesis cosmogony is far superior, both philosophically and scientifically. At this point, evolutionists might counter-argue that creation is not scientific, it is religious and has no place in science. But we've pointed out that all theories of the past have to be based on assumptions, because no one can revisit the past to test their theories. Assumptions are always made within a belief system, a worldview. So the Big Bang Theory is just as much based on faith as is the biblical model, and is therefore no more scientific nor less religious. Both models, therefore, have equivalent philosophical foundations. We've established that the Big Bang is built on top of a philosophical or religious or ideological foundation, as are all origins models, and we're looking at some of the as-yet unsolved problems, like the origin of galaxies and stars. Well, what about the origin of the universe itself? The most common statement is that it popped out of a quantum fluctuation. Well, according to quantum theory, the vacuum is not just empty space. It's actually full of virtual particles that jump in and out of existence rapidly. They appear for a very brief period of time, according to the uncertainty principle. And even though they may contain huge amounts of energy, they jump in and out of existence in a perfectly balanced way, which leaves the impression of nothingness. And this is believed to have been confirmed experimentally in the Casimir effect. Let's let Hartnett and Williams comment on this. They wrote, So is it possible that the universe just popped into existence out of the vacuum through nothing more than a quantum fluctuation? Some people think so, although they seem to conveniently forget that the laws of quantum physics would have had to already be in existence. So one could not say that the universe created itself out of nothing. Others have pointed out, however, that the lifetime of quantum events is inversely proportional to the mass of the object, and this precludes any such cosmological quantum event. If a universe did pop into existence by quantum fluctuation, nobody would notice. The lifetime of a quantum event the size of our universe would be less than 10 to the minus 103rd seconds. Moreover, virtual particles today appear within the vacuum of space. In the primordial singularity, there was no space, and so no vacuum. All such speculations about primordial smooth folding and quantum jumps are ultimately unverifiable, however, and the only certainty here is that the Big Bang model does indeed begin in a singularity. As Professor Hawking has said, at the singularity, general relativity and all other physical laws would break down. One couldn't predict what will come out of the singularity. This means that one might as well cut the Big Bang and any events before it out of the theory because they have no effect on what we observe. Once you accept the singularity, you must let go of your tools, the laws of physics, for predicting how a universe might come out of it because those tools no longer work. If the tools don't work, and the explosion is hypothetical, then the beginning scenario in Big Bang Theory is indistinguishable from a miracle. The title of this show is Creation, Myth, or Miracle, because creation is one or the other. It's either a myth and never happened, or it's a miracle and God caused it. You could also say Big Bang, Myth, or Miracle, 
because either it never happened, or if it did, it is a miracle. It transcends the laws of physics. But let's get beyond the absolute initial point. Let's look at how well the theory really works. We mentioned earlier that in Stephen Hawking's 1988 best-selling book, he put the origin of stars and galaxies on his list of unsolved problems. By the way, they're on the bottom of the list. You'd think that would be uh, more toward the top since it's a pretty big problem. It's still there in his published lectures, The Theory of Everything, in 2002. Galaxy formation still on the list of unsolved problems. How in the world do you claim a theory explains everything we observe when it can't explain galaxies? Uh, talk about newspeak or doublespeak. Hawking is not the only one to note this difficulty. In a 1990 paper in Nature, Peebles and Silk, both cosmologists, discussed a comparison of five different theories of galaxy formation and reached this conclusion. We would not give very high odds that any of these theories is a useful approximation of how galaxies were actually formed. What we need is a crucial idea that leads to a new and profitable line of thinking. The great example in cosmology is the discovery of the expanding universe. Another inspiring example from geology was the discovery of continental drift and plate tectonics. Well, there has been no new profitable line of thinking. The problem remains as unsolved as it has ever been. It was put this way at one point. There shouldn't be galaxies out there at all. And even if there are galaxies, they shouldn't be grouped together the way they are. It's one of the thorniest problems in cosmology. It's hard to convey the depth of frustration that this simple fact induces among scientists. And the scientists at NASA explained... We have no direct evidence of how galaxies were formed or how galaxies evolved, whether they were formed from aggregations of smaller units or from subdivisions of larger ones. Bottom line is, no one has any idea at all as to how galaxies formed. And the same is true of stars, because you need the very first stars before you can head off with the current theory of how future stars form. you got to have the first ones. So how do you get gravitationally bound objects, like stars, planets, galaxies, even dust, out of the Big Bang? James Burney wrote in Nature a few years ago, The greatest difficulty is that we have no idea what induced the formation of the first bound objects in an expanding universe, those objects bound together by gravity, such as planets or stars. And Abraham Loeb of Harvard's Center for Astrophysics said, The truth is that we don't understand star formation at a fundamental level. So trying to sum this up, Hartnett and Williams wrote, How can we say this simply? Perhaps just this. The universe is, by definition, the planets, stars, and galaxies that surround us. Insofar as Big Bang Theory does not explain the origin of these objects, then we can say that Big Bang Theory does not even address the question of the origin of the universe. It does not even get to first base. Big Bang Theory produces, at best, given the benefit of every doubt, an expanding mass of gas. It does not produce even one solar system, let alone a whole galaxy of billions of solar systems. So the best theory that science has to offer can't explain any of the things we observe. It doesn't even get to first base. We've actually been discussing the Big Bang myth or miracle, 
noting that the origin of the Big Bang requires a miraculous event outside of physics, and then examining its inability to explain what we observe around us. It's failing to explain stars or galaxies or any other gravitationally bound objects, for example. Well, there is a growing dissatisfaction in the scientific community with the Big Bang, although you'd be unlikely to notice it if you don't pay close attention to the media. Way back in 2004, 33 scientists signed an open letter to the scientific community, which was published in New Scientist. Today, there are hundreds of signers of this document. You can see it for yourself at www.cosmologystatement.org. It begins, The Big Bang today relies on a growing number of hypothetical entities, things we have never observed. Inflation, dark matter, and dark energy are the most prominent examples. Without them, there would be a fatal contradiction between the observations made by astronomers and the predictions of the Big Bang Theory. In no other field of physics would this continual recourse to new hypothetical objects be accepted as a way of bridging the gap between theory and observation. It would at least raise serious questions about the validity of the underlying theory. But the Big Bang can't survive without these fudge factors. Without the hypothetical inflation field, the Big Bang does not predict the smooth, isotropic, cosmic background radiation that is observed, because there would be no way for parts of the universe that are now more than a few degrees away in the sky to come to the same temperature and thus emit the same amount of microwave radiation. Without some kind of dark matter, unlike any that we have observed on Earth despite 20 years of experiments, Big Bang Theory makes contradictory predictions for the density of matter in the universe. Inflation requires a density 20 times larger than that implied by Big Bang nucleosynthesis, the theory's explanation for the origin of the light elements. And without dark energy, the theory predicts that the universe is only about 8 billion years old, which is billions of years younger than the age of many stars in our galaxy. What is more, the Big Bang Theory can boast of no quantitative predictions that have subsequently been validated by observation. The successes claimed by the theory's supporters consist of its ability to retrospectively fit observations with a steadily increasing array of adjustable parameters, just as the old Earth-centered cosmology of Ptolemy needed layer upon layer of epicycles. The letter then discusses some other difficulties that I won't get into here. They then discuss why alternative theories don't get pursued. They write, Whereas Richard Feynman could say that science is the culture of doubt, in cosmology today, doubt and dissent are not tolerated, and young scientists learn to remain silent if they have something negative to say about the standard Big Bang model. Those who doubt the Big Bang fear that saying so will cost them their funding. Today, virtually all financial and experimental resources in cosmology are devoted to Big Bang studies. Funding comes from only a few sources, and all the peer review committees that control them are dominated by supporters of the Big Bang. As a result, the dominance of the Big Bang within the field has become self-sustaining, irrespective of the scientific validity of the theory. So I hope from this brief discussion, you at least get the idea that the Big Bang is anything but a solid, proven theory. It has numerous internal scientific difficulties in addition to the initial conditions which require a miraculous occurrence. And there truly is suppression of alternative ideas in academia. 
Well, yes, okay, but how could the biblical story possibly be true with a six-day creation a few thousand years ago when there are objects out there, there are galaxies that are millions of light years away? That light took millions of years to get here, traveling at the current speed of light. How do you explain that? Is there any scientifically viable creationist theory of the origin of the universe that actually addresses those issues, huh? Well, that is a very good and valid observation and question and deserves an answer. However, we obviously have no time left on this show, but we will address that. There are multiple creationist cosmologies in development by creationist physicists that are attempting to address these issues. There's some very interesting development out there. There is certainly nothing in this area of study that proves the Bible can't be true. See creationmythormiracle.com for more info.